Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Hello, dear ones. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that you and your family are doing well today. I want to thank you very much for watching this video. And this is a follow-up video of sorts, I suppose, to the previous video that I posted entitled Romans 13 and Pastor James Coates. By now, all of you know that James Coates, the pastor of Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, has been arrested simply for holding church, opening up his church and worshiping God and fellowshipping with the saints and bearing one another's burdens. And uh, for this, he has been arrested. And as I record this right now, he is sitting in a prison cell. And in God's kind providence, I was able to make contact with James' wife, Erin, and uh, I asked her if she would be willing to come on to uh, my YouTube channel here, do an interview, because I would really like you to hear from her. I saw a, an interview that Erin did with a Canadian uh, reporter, and uh, my wife Kathy and I watched that and were just so so impressed by um, her maturity and the depth of understanding that she has and the issues at stake here. And so I really wanted to uh, let you hear from her. And so for the next, uh, I don't have in front of me, but 45, 50 minutes or so, uh, you will hear from Aaron. Uh, your heart undoubtedly will break, but I think you will also be encouraged in the gospel in listening to Aaron as well. So, um, I'm going to play this interview, and that you might notice that this is a very long video, and that's because I am posting again uh, Pastor James Coates' sermon from Romans 13 that he preached on February 14th. This was two days before he was arrested. And then also, I've also included a sermon that was preached at his church uh, February 21st. Uh, is preached by his associate pastor there, associate uh, pastor and elder, Jacob Spence, and he preaches a, a wonderful message from Philippians chapter 1. And uh, so I want you to hear uh, from Aaron, and I also want you to hear her sermon, her husband's sermon again, as well as the sermon that was preached on the very first Sunday that Pastor James spent in, in prison pray please pray for this precious family pray for this local body of believers grace life church in edmonton and pray that god in his kind providence would use this as a powerful testimony he already is i'm already hearing that churches all across canada are opening up because of the witness of grace life in edmonton so pray that god would use this uh, for the furtherance of his gospel as a powerful testimony to a watching world. Without any further delay, here's Aaron. Well, Aaron, I so want to thank you for joining me uh, for my YouTube channel and uh, found out that we have a, a mutual friend in Susan Heck. So, <laughs> Susan Hank, uh, for those watching, has a website with themaster.com. And, and um, Susan is married to a man named Doug. And Doug was our pastor, Kathy and my pastor, when we lived in Oklahoma about uh, eight or so years ago. So how did, how did you get connected with Susan? 
Well, I think I've heard Susan's name for years and I ended up doing a conference with her last year online, Open Hearts in a Closed World. Oh, okay. So as I was obviously, you know, you want to know who you're doing a conference with. And so I just started researching her and listening to her content. And I was like, this woman is phenomenal. Um, I need to call her. (laughs) And we've been friends ever since. So she has just been a dear treasure to me. She is one of those women who just spurs me on uh, to love Christ more. I mean, her conviction for memorizing scripture is just incredible. Um, so as a, as a teacher to our, our women, um, she just really models well for me what that should look like. So I always say to her, you know, you, you have permission to say whatever you want in my life. If I've said something wrong, <laughs> she's just a, a sweet friend. And so we meet every couple of weeks. Yeah. Well, good. Well, well, Susan is the one who connected us. I'm so grateful that she did. And, um, yeah, I want to thank you for your time here. And, and so I think everyone pretty much now knows kind of at least the gist of what has been going on with your husband, James, and his arrest. Uh, of course, all of this started for all of us about a year or so ago when COVID started becoming a, a big news issue and uh, people began to be really worried about it in, in the spring just about all, maybe not all, but vast majority of the churches shut down before we really realized how serious this was going to be. But um, then beginning in June, Grace Life Church opened back up, right? Can you just give us a, a bird's eye view, Aaron, of, of how you got from opening back up in June to to where you are now? Yeah, sure. Um, So we opened back up, obviously, because there was so much conflicting information out there from a medical standpoint. And uh, we know people within the medical community that were giving us different um, ways of looking at the virus. And so uh, we opened back up just because it it hit our church very hard. When you have a true Acts 2 church that is so involved in one another's lives and um, loves one another the way our church does to separate us the way that they did was very hurtful to our church. Um, it was almost like a morning, just the, the messages you would get and the songs that were being sent, like people were really feeling the weight of being separated. And so leadership just really looked at that and thought, okay, we, we have to open, like, what is, what is obedience demand of us in, in opening back up when the information is starting to roll out. And um, so we've kind of always had restrictions on the church. I think in the summer, it was about 30% capacity. Um, I can't remember if there was masks and social distancing at that point. I don't think we were allowed to sing. Um, And then at the end of November, they were starting to really crack down on um, like gatherings again. And then we went into another health emergency um, in the in December, in early December. And it seems like somebody had called AHS on us, which is um, Alberta Health Services. Alberta Health Services has essentially been given all authority to dictate how we are to live our lives um, in the church and outside of the church. And so uh, we're very restrictive on the church. And we just thought like, we, we have to keep going. And, you know, we're getting testimonies of 
suicides are going up, abuse is going up, depression is going up. Um, I actually had taught on um, First Thessalonians four one through eight there, and I just did some research on what 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 are what are the effects of the pandemic in regards to um, like pornography and children and women it was skyrocketing during the pandemic and so you're watching all of these things happening and it's so heartbreaking and so our guys just kept going and and so ahs started paying us visits and um with the rcmp and then about i think it was what's, what's the for us uh for us down in the states what's rcmp rcmp is royal mounted canadian police okay okay um, so they would be not quite our city police, but they would be different districts. Um, you, usually you'd see them in their, in, in shows in their red mounted gear on a horse. Yeah. That's yeah. like a ceremonial, um, yeah. outfit, but they dress like normal cops when, when they're on duty. So they were coming to our gathering and, um, they issued us an order to follow the protocol and that we have to be abiding by the rules. and. We had not had any COVID cases transmitted or spread within our Sunday gathering. Now, we had some cases in the summer that were outside of the gathering, and we actually shut down for two weeks to make sure, like, did it actually get to the gathering? And it didn't. Um, so we shut down for those two weeks, and then we just resumed. Um, but we have not contracted or spread COVID within our, our Sunday gathering. Our people are fairly intelligent People, I think, you know, if they're really fatigued or they have a sore throat or the sniffles or a cough, they don't come to church and they, yeah. they stay back for two weeks. Right. Um, and so when they gave us the, the order to follow the restrictions, they also fined James for not following this, the restrictions. And then a couple weeks passed and in January, um, AHS filed a, I think a court, a court appeal to, to enforce greater um, consequences for us continuing to gather and breaking the restrictions. And I, I'm saying restrictions because everyone's like, you are breaking the law, but it's like, it, it's not, it's not, it's not the law. It, it hasn't it's not gone, the law, right. Yeah, it's not, it hasn't gone through the, the democratic process. So you have this health emergency. Exactly. I'm not a professional, um, but it's really scary when you can have a health emergency Put one person in power, and then the whole society struggles from that. And one thing that's really interesting to me is they're not doing any studies on the effects of the lockdown. And they have been petitioned by various doctors um, to do that. So we have a friend who is a doctor, and she is grieved by what she's seeing in her own practice in regard to the lockdowns. Yeah. I was talking to a gentleman yesterday and he says, you know, he says, I don't know anyone who's died of COVID. I know five people who committed suicide. Wow. And yeah. And then I was speaking to another woman and uh, she's had seven people in her circle commit suicide. And so the suicide rates are skyrocketing and we have nurses in the hospital saying like our concern isn't COVID anymore. It is the drug overdoses. We have an opioid um, issue here. People are, drug overdose, alcohol, um, abuse, all of that is coming into the hospital, suicides. Yeah. Um, even speaking with police officers, they're inundated with those kinds of phone calls. So um, that, so they, they, they wanted to, to push us further. Um, we didn't comply in obedience to the Lord and, 
and our collective elders um, conscience on keeping our church open, both to believers and unbelievers in such a difficult time. And then on James's uh, 41st birthday, which was the end of January, they issued us a closure notice and they stuck it to the door and said, this church is closed. (laughs) Um, So then we just kept going and we think like you, you can't close down Christ's church. Um, So, and then on February 17th, 7th, James was arrested. It was a, it was a catch and release. And so the RCMP, they didn't want to humiliate him. They said, you know, you've really respected us and we want to respect you. I think they were really put between a rock and a hard place. Um, And so they arrested him, but they did it at the church. They didn't cuff him, but they issued him an undertaking. And James did not sign the undertaking because the undertaking was that he would not conduct service the way he had previously been doing. So he said, I can't sign that. Um, And so they left. And then the following Sunday, we had a a service and um, the RCMP called and they said, like, you're under arrest again. We want you to turn yourself in. And so that was uh, Tuesday, the 16th. And then so he was at the RCMP um, station. And then he went before two justice of the peace. Um, they did, they were like, I do not want to make a martyr of this man. And they washed their hands of him, but they put a restriction in place for him to not conduct services as he had previously been doing. So, and that if he didn't abide by that, he wasn't allowed on grace life property. He wasn't allowed to conduct a worship service. And so he said, I can't sign that. And so they detained him. And um, he had a trial, a bail hearing the next day. And uh, he, he told me um, after that trial that they had shackled him. They had cuffed his wrists and his legs. Um, we were trying to find out, like, where was, when was his trial? Um, I'm trying to, like, obviously get there to him. Yeah. And the, the courthouse was telling us he was gone. It was already done and over. He's left. And so um, one of our guys was at the courthouse and he came around the back and he actually saw James coming out in chains. Um, And he only had 15 seconds to say, like, we love you. We're we're with you. And then the officer pulled him away. Um, So then he went back to the RCMP station and I was trying to get to him at this point still and then he's like, I'm trying, I'm, I'm at the RCMP station. I'm still like, I'm trying to see you uh, before they take me to jail. Uh, Cause everything's COVID laws, right? They're not yeah. zoom private. Um, and so when I had arrived at the RCMP station, I, I said, can I see him? And they're like, no, he's not here. And it was only about a 15 minute window. And my friend had said, I, I didn't see anyone she was sitting in the parking lot. She said, I didn't see anyone leave the parking lot. So um, I had not talked to him probably. I can't, my timelines now are are a little bit fuzzy Wednesday, maybe Thursday. Um, Just, it it was crazy. So we didn't even know if he was actually at the jail, like what had happened. And so his lawyer was able to get a hold of him and talk to him and tell me, no, he's there. Um, cause he wasn't in the system because he's, he, he can walk, he can, he can be a free man. If he just, yeah. you know, if he just signs that piece of paper and he says, yes, I will refuse the gathering to, um, like 
two fifths or sixths of our church. Um, but he's, he just can't, he can't do it. So he's in there until his, his trial, we are moving for an appeal to drop the conditions. Um, and at this point, AHS has handed the baton to the RCMP. So no one wants to take responsibility for what's happening. The RCMP is pointing the finger at AHS. AHS is pointing the finger at the RCMP. People are pointing their fingers at our premier. Our premier's like, I don't have anything to do with this. So I'm like, who's in charge here? Yeah, no kidding. So it's just, you know, and to hear that they have released like criminals into society because of COVID and they've arrested a man who is armed with the words of life and has made it his life to minister to people and help people um, is astonishing to me, but you know, the Lord's going to put him where he wants to put him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, I was sharing with you before we started recording that um, we we've seen one interview that you did and my wife, Kathy and I were just so, so very impressed with uh, your composure and the, the depth of the of the answers that you gave. And, and uh, my wife told me the other night, she said that that you and your family are all she's been able to think about ever since this, you know, became news. And uh, she's just uh, I've seen her in tears, you know, and, and when we've been talking about you guys uh, and maybe I should have begun with this, but. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your family. You have two sons. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we have an almost 18 year old on Thursday. He'll be 18. Wow. Okay. Um, and then we have an 11 year old, both, both boys. We've wanted to have more kids, but it just hasn't happened. So um, yeah, James is my best friend. He is, I don't want to cry. <laughs> he's, he's okay. a, He's a strong leader. So when you take that leader away, I feel lost and I'm having to make decisions I've never had to make before. And uh, that's a really, that's a really hard thing, especially knowing him and his heart. Um, So there's been nights where I've, I've woken up crying and that's, that's double-sided. I'm obviously concerned about him. I'm concerned about the church. I'm concerned about how she's responded to this. Um, it, It is, it is baffling to me that people are saying that, you know, he just has a martyr complex or he wants to be a a revolutionary. And you're just thinking this man, this is, this is basic obedience to Christ. Opening the gathering is basic obedience to Christ. And he's being called a revolutionary. And to me, that is just so sad because that tells us where the church is and she's asleep. And my greatest fear is that if the tide does not change, we will go down in the church history books as the generation that kissed sound ecclesiology goodbye and just opted to live stream, you know, which is, is very sad. Right. Right. And, and speaking of that, some of the pushback that I've seen from people, some of the criticisms and, and I, one, I don't know if you saw the video, the first video I did, but, uh, um, one one individual referred to your husband as a snowflake. Yeah, I was watching. I saw your video. Yeah, <laughs> that was a real test of my sanctification <laughs> when I heard that. Um, as you said a minute ago, this this is a man who he could have his freedom right now. Right, all he has to do is agree not to preach. Um, so, 
what would you say to those who say, oh, well, it's no big deal. You know, just keep your capacity at 15 percent. Uh, if you can't sing, it's, you know, it's okay. You can, you can zoom in, you can do online, you know, you can watch live stream. Uh, so what's the big deal? What would you say to those folks? Yeah, I'd say probably a large portion of those people have not been called to pastoral ministry. They have not called, um, they have not been called and qualified to take care of people and, and have to stand before Christ and give an account for the souls that have been entrusted to them. So I think they just don't understand. I hope they don't. That's that is what at the heart of it. They don't understand the weight that a shepherd carries before Christ and seriousness of that call, because people love to say, you know, you're allowed to have 15% capacity, but our people have, have names and, and feelings. And, and, you know, they have a conscience that they have to, worship the Lord according to his word. And so for us to turn away a large portion of the congregation every Sunday, um, we, we can't do that. Those are Christ's people. You, Christ would never do that to us. Yeah. So I would just say the, probably a large portion of them would, they just don't understand the responsibility um, to those that are pastors. And I want to be very careful. Obviously I'm a woman. Um, I would just say, you know, go before the Lord and, and check your heart and do some really deep study on, you know, the things that you're using to hide behind. Like, I I believe there are genuine men who are just confused. They've understood Romans 13, a certain way. Um, and they've never really had to think about this. I mean, we've never had to think about this. Right. Um, so I know there will be men like that. Um, but I just say like, please consider your people, Um, we have a very real enemy and um, his job is to seek, kill, destroy. And and how does he do that? Well, in isolation, you can't live the Christian life by yourself. Right. uh, right. Unfortunately, what I think the fruit of that is, what is a lack of preaching from the pulpit. I think Um, it could be a lack of relationship with your congregation. So not only is James a shepherd of Grace Life Church, he's first and foremost a member of Grace Life Church, mm-hmm. leading the church. But the people of Grace Life Church have gifts that James needs to be sanctified to be more like Christ. Sure. So he is very intimately involved with the people. And so much of our work happens on Sunday. And I think we have a very poor theology of preaching and what's actually happening in the moment of preaching when the preacher is, is had the book is open and he's mediating the presence of God, whether an accurate exposition of the word is happening and the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts corporately. Um, and so I think we have a weak theology of preaching um, and it could just be, yeah, like they don't have that relationship with their people. So they don't recognize the need is there. Um, but for our church, you know, whoever is in the pulpit preaches a sermon and then we're at the church with each other, probably until four o'clock it's later now um, of people just applying the sermon. What's this week going to look like for your sanctification? What was your, what did your last week look like? So just a lot of one another's happening on a Sunday. Um, And, and again, James needs to be able to speak with the people. So everyone's saying, well, why can't you just do like six or seven services a Sunday? Well, first of all, 
You still can't sing. You still can't converse with one another. And right. Jane can't even converse with them because they have to leave immediately. So that leaves him in a place of like, how are, how are my sheep responding to God's word? Um, so I think that would, that's probably the fruit of what is happening. Um, so I would just ask those men to consider before the Lord, um, the people who have been entrusted to them and to not leave them for food for the enemy, because when you fall asleep or you become lukewarm, unfortunately, you don't know that that's happening to you. And we had a testimony of a, a young lady come into our church and she hadn't been in the gathering for 11 months. And she came in and she just wept because she didn't realize how cold her heart had become. And so when she went there, it was just like, whoa, like I needed this. And um, I've been having a lot of letters written to me um, since James has left and people's testimonies. uh, A lot of people have recently come to our church because of the pandemic. Their churches are closed. Yeah. And, and their testimony is, we didn't even know how hungry we were. We didn't even know how anemic we were. Um, one, one young guy, just this brought me to tears. He said, Pastor James, keeping the church open saved my life because the sin in his life was so aggressive. And the gathering for him where he sees all of these people who are sinners, but striving for holiness. He looked at that every Sunday and that helped him not be consumed by his sin. So all of these stories are coming in and you're just like, this is, this is so sad. And and stories of people, their churches are shut down and they're alone. And, And the implications of that for somebody's sanctification, because if they're not making progress in sanctification, they're not glorifying God to the fullest. So we have stories like that rolling in and and that's a huge encouragement. So I think that's what's, what's happening. And zoom makes sheep hungry, (laughs) skinny. Right. Uh, Right. I, you know, I've um, had vertigo a couple of weeks back and I, I actually had to live stream our service because I was so dizzy. I couldn't walk and uh, I didn't feel at all. Like I was a part of the body. I was just a spectator watching what was happening on the TV. I couldn't hear voices. I couldn't hear pages turning. Uh, even to keep your, your focus on the TV is really difficult. Yeah. It's yeah. not as an, as engaging as when you're there. So, um, it's, it's different. It's not the same. And, and I think why people say, or are so quick to say, why don't you just live stream to me? That's just so sad because they've probably never experienced true biblical exposition and that's really heartbreaking yeah yeah it's just not the same i mean it's uh i'm i'm grateful to to be able to go on youtube and watch sermons whenever i want to and that's that's great for a you know a spiritual supplement if you will but uh but it is not the same thing and never will be this it will never be a replacement for gathering with your fellow brothers and sisters in christ and Seeing them, seeing their faces, yeah. uh, sans a mask, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a it's it's a dehumanizing thing to to have your face covered, and it, it's uh, yeah. So there's just no replacement. There's a reason that we that Christ commands us to gather. Yeah, and I'm I'm so appreciative for what y'all are doing, and uh, 
you know, Romans 8, 28, all, God works all things together for the good. It does not mean that all things are good. And what has happened to your husband is, is not in and of itself good. But uh, I tell you, Aaron, I really believe that, that there's going to be a lot of good fruit born mm. from this. Yeah. yeah. So wait, oh. did I answer your question? Did you ask me how do I handle how do I handle <laughs> people saying things? Sometimes I yeah, well, uh, yeah, I guess I did in a way. Has it um, has how discouraging has it been to see that some people are are basically they're saying that James brought this on himself, and uh, has it been a discouragement to you or to you and the boys? Or? Yeah, I've had moments. Yes, I've had moments. Um, people just say the most awful thing. They've they've judged the situation. I mean, we're being accused of being rich white people. That the reason why we, he wasn't arrested earlier is because he's a rich white man. And I'm kind of like, oh. I just want to come over to our house and have dinner and like, get to know us. And um, but oh. for me, th- this is Christ's church at stake. And, um, you know, they have to answer before the Lord, every idle word that is both spoken and typed will come into an account. And I don't have to answer to them. I have to answer to the Lord and it's my job to be obedient to him. I can definitely lose sight of that. And, and when I see comments come in, um, see that that's where you're talking about dehumanizing, um, what I think the pandemic has sought to facilitate is a dehumanizing of people where they can just fire things off on the internet Mm. that they wouldn't do face to face and um, in a biblical manner. So everyone is just talking and making a judgment on the situation, but it's it at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because they're not grace life. I have not been called to minister to them, to care for them. Obviously, if they contact me and they need help, I'll do my best to help them. But um, all that matters to both James and I is the health of the church that we've been called to minister to. That's that's the priority for us. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Well, how, how are your boys doing? How are, how are they handling this, Aaron? Yeah, um, yesterday was really hard on my oldest. He, um, I think he has a more accurate picture of what is happening. Um, so it's hitting him a little bit harder. My children are very, um, I've guarded them from a lot. So they don't know the negativity. Isaac knows like, um, my oldest one, he knows there's heat and, and he has a better idea of the picture of things. And I think that's why it affects him a little bit more, yeah. but he, you know, since I like, since I've been growing my babies with church history and missionary biographies and the cost of knowing Christ. And this is hard. And this is probably the hardest thing, or maybe it's not the hardest thing. Maybe this is just the, the beginning of, of what's happening in our world, but that he knows that God is doing this for his glory and that he needs to be refined. Um, my youngest though, because he's more sheltered from the situation. He has moments where he like misses his dad, obviously. Um, and there, there has been tears. Um, but he just doesn't know all of the other stuff that's flying around. So, and he shouldn't, he shouldn't have to carry that burden at this point. Um, 
So they're, they're sorrowful, but, but rejoicing. I mean, our church family has taken such good care of us since this happened and um, writing the kids letters and telling them what, what the Lord has done through his ministry. And um, that's encouraged them. But I think it's just, you know, they've sat under their dad's ministry for 11 years. Um, He's trained them for this. And um, so they're as prepared as they could be. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, who's really prepared for this? (laughs) Yeah. No. Uh, I think I mentioned in my first video, you know, we've all had this as believers, we've all had this kind of general understanding that at, at, at some point persecution is a possibility, but it's always been kind of a, a distant, you know, that, that happens in other countries, in other parts of the world, not here, not in, not in the West. Uh, but here it is. And, um, and I tell you, if you don't have a good doctrinal foundation, when this stuff comes, you're not going to be prepared for it. Not that any of us are fully prepared for it, but uh, you certainly won't be equipped to handle it. And uh, but boy, y'all, y'all certainly have handled yourselves in such a a wonderful, magnificent, Christ honoring way. Um, That's my heart. I, I'm just like Lord, don't don't let me blow this. You've been training me, you, like you've been showing me who you are. Don't let me. I need to see more of Him though. Like my. My life has been um, more loved to the O Christ. And so this is, he's brought, he's brought the knife and uh, in his faithfulness, he's afflicting us. And uh, I, I, I know him, but I want to know him more. And right. this is what he's brought for us to love him more and to rip the sinfulness away from us to be more like him. Uh, it's painful. Yeah. The knife is cut deep. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. I can't imagine. I really can't. Um, Aaron, I, I don't want to ask you to, to preach your, your husband's <laughs> sermon, but uh, I thought his sermon on, and I, I'm getting, let me ask this first. I guess when he preached on Sunday, February 14th from Romans 13, and that's the text that deals with being in submission to the, to the governing authorities. I'm guessing he preached that knowing that in all likelihood that was going to be his last time in that pulpit for the, you know, foreseeable future. Correct. He kind of, yeah, he didn't, he, oh, didn't he didn't know. He didn't know what the con he didn't know. Like he knew that he was already under arrest. He knew he was breaking the undertaking. He knew that um, arrest in jail was very real, but I, we just didn't know. Um, just didn't know one way or the other. Sure. But the, it was definitely, yeah, he knew Every Sunday he preached, I think he was thinking, is this my last sermon? Oh, so, yeah. Okay. okay. And, and so what would you say to those who say uh, the governing authorities were commanded to be in submission to them and the governing authorities have told us that we, we've got to limit our church gatherings to 15%. We've got to do this, got to do that. So uh, by going against that, you're going against what God says in Romans 13. Uh, for those who have not yet heard James' sermon, uh, what would be your kind of uh, bird's eye view? Of, um, what has James said about that? Yeah, I think, well, he goes back to the garden and just the, um, the, the role that God has given us as human beings created in his image to um, have dominion over the earth. And he's given us certain mandates and the government's responsibility is to 
um, give us freedom to do the things that God has called us to do because so many people want to say like, um, the government is right. The government is right. But so much of what they're saying goes against God's word, not only in worship, you have people who are, can't work. Well, God's word says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Um, And so, and so there's things that they're asking us in the mandate to do that are directly against God's word. And it may not be personal for somebody, but when you have a health order in place, that's keeping people from their God ordained means of providing for their family, um, worship, and that that's a serious thing. So the government was never meant to, they're, they're God's ministers. They're, mm-hmm. they're there to uphold the freedoms of people so that they are free to worship God. They're there to punish ev- the evildoer and, and praise the person who's doing good. So when you start, when you have a government that's reaching into the church, they, they are not upholding their role as lesser magistrates. Um, and there is a point in which people have to say, like, it's time to disobey the government. Um, And it's unfortunate that they haven't drawn the line. And the reason why they haven't drawn the line is various reasons, whether it's fear, whether it's just a misunderstanding of Romans 13. But again, I think it just comes back to a low view of the gathering, um, which is unfortunate. So I would say just listen to James's sermon because he does so much better than I but just laying it out that there is a limit to government and that they're to uphold uh, what God has told them to uphold, which is not what they're doing. So, in fact, just in listening to you, I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to put the, I'm going to put James sermon at the end of this video (laughs) as well, just so more people can be exposed to it. But uh, yeah, you're exactly right. And, And the government is overstepping. It's all authority is delegated, right? I mean, it all, has its origin in God and God delegates authority in, in when a person or an entity um, oversteps that delegated authority, then they've, they've gone against the very one who gave them that authority in the first place. And, and the government doesn't have jurisdiction in the church. Right. So that's one of the yeah. key things I appreciated about his sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Aaron, well, tell me, tell me this. Um, we're recording this on February 22nd, Monday. So y'all, y'all had church yesterday from what I saw and uh, from everything I've read, it was to capacity and you even had what a hundred or so people sitting in their cars out in the parking lot that just couldn't get in because of the fire code. Right. Yeah. I don't even think they were in their cars. We had tables outside with a speaker and we had some of our guys going out to serve um, like tea and coffee and make sure those people, had come were were being taken care of and they could hear the sermon. Um, but it, there was a lot of people outside um, from what I've been told. But yes, I have never heard our church sing so loud in my life. It was huh. it was a truly bittersweet moment because obviously James is not there, but Grace Life took a stand and she, she's standing knowing that we don't, we had RCMP officers lining the street. Um, and they probably were doing that for our protection, but we don't know if we're going to be arrested. We don't know if we're, yeah. if our pastor Jake is going to be arrested. We don't know if we're all going to be fined. So we don't know what's happening. We're just going to, we're just going to worship the Lord because he's worthy. And then we're just going to take the consequences of that. So um, just the Lord blessed it. Um, 
the word went forth with power. He, he preached Philippians 1, 27 through 30 and our role and how are we to respond to everything that's happening and walking worthy of the gospel just proclaimed Christ. I think we had about a thousand viewers. His sermon has already reached, I think, 5,000 in a day, which is not, that's unheard of for our church. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so what we care about is just the gospel. And there was unbelievers at our church because a lot of people want to support us in, in what we're doing for freedom, but that's not our primary um, purpose. That's, that's the secondary cause of just what I believe is basic obedience to Christ. Um, so it was amazing. It was an amazing day. It was bittersweet for sure. I bet it was. I think I left. I was so exhausted, and I think I left at four thirty, and there it was still packed. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Praise the Lord! What an mm-hmm. encouragement that is. It's what an encouragement it's been for us, for Kathy and me, just to to see y'all's witness and. Uh, Mm-hmm. What a courageous stand for Christ. You know, MacArthur has helped so many of us in, in taking the stand that he has uh, against the officials out there in California, but it hasn't escalated to the point where obviously that it, that it has with y'all up yeah. in Canada. But um, so you alluded to it, but I guess at this point, like you don't know at, at any point they could maybe next Sunday they'll come and, and arrest your other elders. I mean, you just don't know at this point what's going to happen. No. No, they could contact even during the week and arrest him. Hmm. Um, yeah, anything could happen. We don't know. Every Sunday, we're just so thankful to be there because we don't know if it's going to be our last. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, Aaron, what can, what can we do to help? What can I or our, our viewers, anybody watching this video that wants to help, I know you I've heard you say that your attorney is working pro bono, but do you, do you and your family have any physical needs? What, what can, what can folks do? As of right now, we don't have any physical needs. Our church has so that they have taken care of us. Yeah. Um, we are, we are blessed. Um, I think, well, there's just prayer is so massive in this. Maybe pray that we get a new building. <laughs> okay. Cause we don't want to have to put people outside. Right. Um, so we maybe a bigger facility, but um, I think the biggest thing is pray for men to really consider this issue. This, this is a defining moment in the life of the church. And we need to be praying for men who I'm getting messages all the time from people. I wish my pastor would take a stand. I wish my pastor would take a stand. I wish my pastor would take a stand and they're all flowing in. Yeah. And so praying that men in Alberta and Canada will, will take that stand for Christ and for his bride. Um, we are hearing of churches that are slowly opening um, and people are sending letters to their pastors and sending James's sermon. I think circulating the sermon is a really big thing um, for people to listen to it and just understand and have a, a sound theology of the role of government um, and, and then yeah, I think it's the, the safety of our church that the Lord would protect them. Um, I've never quite seen spiritual warfare like this. And now they're starting to try, try to create various narratives. Like there was a, we had a peaceful protest outside of the jail on Saturday and it was beautiful. There was singing, the gospel went out. 
Um, and it, it was a really great day. But then there was another um, rally at our legislation legislator legis, legislation building, um, and a riot broke out. And there was about a hundred cops, from what I understand, and they were trying to blame us. And so they're trying to pair us with like white national groups. Uh. Um, so they're just trying to spin the narrative. It's absolutely evil. Um, and so I just, I don't think I've quite experienced the, the spiritual battle on the level that we are. And and we just can't worry about that. We just have to keep being faithful and let the Lord deal with all of that. Um, but it's evil. This is an evil nation. And when, even when I think about AHS, this is a, this is a health service that murders over a thousand babies a month, far than COVID ever could. And so um, when you think about the fact that they're like, we care about life, we care about life. Okay. Well, why are you still murdering babies? You've just put in place um, more access to assisted suicide for the elderly who are being isolated and don't want to live anymore because no one's coming to visit them. Um, You know, we just have a government that has given the Nobel peace prize to a man who not only made abortion possible in Canada, but made it free for all. So there's no laws for abortion in Canada. You can have an abortion, even live abortion is a gray area from what I've read. Um, So it is just, it's dark. I think like we knew Alberta was a spiritually dry place, but I think this has really shown us how dark this nation actually is and how corrupt it is. So um yeah, just pray for protection for our church. I think that's the biggest thing that people can do is just pray for us. Pray that we would be a light. Pray that the gospel would go forth. Um, and then pray for other men to really consider their opening their churches. Cause you know, Canada is starting to say, well, there's new variants, there's new variants, and these variants are are worse than the than the first one. And you're just going, well, is this gonna last for how long? <laughs> yeah, I know. So I know. Exactly. I mean yeah, we, we heard from uh, Dr. Fauci, I think, yesterday that we may be having to wear masks through 2022. And I, <laughs> I, I, I really think this has become more, far more of a co- control issue than it is a we really care about your health and well-being issue. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, it's, it's so sad. I think even when you think about the gathering and I think about young children, I try to always connect with the babies in our church and the toddlers and um, making those relationships with kids so that they know that when they grow up, like Auntie Erin is somebody that they can come to and making sure that I'm dialoguing with them. So when you're on live stream, all of those opportunities to, you know, be a Titus II woman or, or a man that's leading younger men, those are, are taken away because it's not only people who come to you with problems, you're developing relationships with people on Sundays. And I have all these little kids coming to me and telling me stories. And uh, so when we're not gathering that, that stuff's not happening. And so that younger generation is going to be starved if we don't um, like what, Oh, I had the most, the saddest letter that I read. Um, They were praising the Lord that they found grace life. They were so hungry, but in the process of the lockdowns and church being online, um, their son walks away. He doesn't, doesn't want to come to the church. 
um, because they just didn't take it seriously enough. And uh, so he just thought, well, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to go. So he doesn't um, once in a while, but not, not so that's sad to like, we lost our child because of the, the live stream, just not taking it seriously. Yeah. That's a sad thing. Yeah. 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 Well, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Um, I, I tell people often that uh, I'm not a pastor. I'm an evangelist. I travel and preach and teach. Um, I, I, I face challenges, but I don't face the kind of challenges that a pastor faces. And I have so much appreciation and respect and love for all of our faithful shepherds out there who are laboring away the vast majority of them in anonymity. Nobody knows about them, uh, but they're, they're doing the Lord's work. And uh, I, I thank God. I truly thank God for the witness of your husband, James, and now the other elders there at the church are stepping up to the plate. I'm so grateful for them. Please know that we are praying for y'all. And I know that many, many others watching this video will be as well. Mm, thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah. May God bless y'all, Aaron. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, thank you for your time with us. And uh, any any last parting thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Just open open your churches. Worship open your church. Sing your heart out. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Oh, what what is uh as best you know, what is the next kind of what are you waiting on legally? What's the, the next thing that the next step that you're hoping to in relation to James? Oh. Wednesday, um, James has, they'll set his trial date. Our lawyer is pushing for the earliest date we can get, which, which is the first week of May, but the crown is attempting to move it to mid June. Wow. So, um, and then we're trying to get our appeal heard to drop his conditions, um, hopefully by the end of this week. So we hope that that goes through. Um, that's, that's like the greatest thing that could happen is his appeal goes through, but I don't know. I, yeah, besides the trial, he could be in there until mid June. And then, um, depending on what the judge wants to do, there could be a sentence or they could, they could just end this all. I mean, the crown at any point can drop the conditions. So, um, oh, maybe another thing that you can do is, um, like just write our government and say like, what are you doing? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And this is, I, I know our premier it has listened to James's sermon. Cause he said, this isn't, this isn't time for a libertarian sermon in the middle of a pandemic. And you're thinking, Oh, you missed it. <laughs> We're yeah. not about being libertarian. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, the God of this age has blinded the minds of them which believe not. It's, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, we will. I don't know how much weight a letter from a, an American, <laughs> an American. carry with your, uh, his name is Jason Kenny, correct? Your Jason Kenny, yeah. Premier. Yeah. Premier, okay. Which is not the prime minister, but premier of Alberta. Alberta, yeah. Okay. All right. And he's conservative. We voted for him. Really? <laughs> Yes. Wow. Yeah. Like, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Well, Aaron, thank you again so much. May the Lord richly bless you and your family, James, and your sons, and may his grace sustain you. I know that um, his strength is made perfect in weakness. His grace will be sufficient. Easier said than done, but um, but we stand on that promise from Scripture. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Justin. May God bless y'all. Thank you. You too. Okay. Are you going to end the recording or do we? Yeah, let me. You yeah, edit? <laughs> yeah, let's see if we pause, stop recording. Well, thank you so much, Joe and team, for leading us in song this morning so faithfully and powerfully. It is a rich, rich joy and pleasure to bring to you the Word of God this morning. And obviously, we've been in John chapter 10, working through John's gospel. And there's a portion at the end of John 10 that we still haven't yet covered, but as I anticipated this moment I I felt something else was needed and I wasn't entirely sure what that was but as the week progressed it began to kind of crystallize and here we are and so we're going to be a little bit off the map today not in John and I've got a bit of an introduction here to kind of set the table a little bit I think we can say this, that this particular time in history has exposed some deficiencies in the broader evangelical church. For one, it's exposed a deficient ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the doctrines of the church and encompasses everything from what the church is to the essential elements of worship. And what's apparent, at least to me, is that the church today has a very low ecclesiology where virtual church is not only fine it's a wonderful evolution of things and related to that is to a deficient approach to scripture that unless scripture explicitly states certain things there's total freedom on how we fulfill its commands and so Unless scripture states, quote, thou shalt meet on Sunday in one gathering, in person, ensuring that all interaction takes place within six feet of the other person, without a mask, and with some kind of physical expression of affection, whether it be a hug or a handshake, end quote, we're off the hook. And it typically goes like this. Scripture doesn't explicitly say... And this is coming from pastors, from the overseers of the corporate gathering. Scripture doesn't explicitly say. And so the government isn't commanding us to sin, and therefore we must obey. And what that reveals is a deficient approach to Scripture. And ironically, it might even betray a legalistic approach to scripture that unless scripture explicitly says something i'm under no obligation to do it so why is that deficient because it fails to recognize 
that the God-intended implications of a passage are binding. It doesn't have to be explicitly said. As students of Scripture, we're under obligation to heed its implications, and that requires a much more careful and thoughtful reading of Scripture. You see, it's too much to ask that Scripture would speak explicitly to our current situation. Now, it does speak to our current situation, both implicitly and explicitly. But given the unique setting we find ourselves in, much is addressed by way of implication. And that requires, again, an intensely careful and thoughtful reading of Scripture. Third, I believe our circumstances have exposed a deficient theology of persecution. We seem to have an incredibly narrow and historically ignorant view of what persecution actually is. We seem to think persecution is only persecution when it's directed exclusively at the church. And that unless the church is being persecuted, it must obey government. Now developing a a robust theology of persecution is beyond the scope of what I intend to do today, but... I think we need to understand that persecution often results from doing what the state forbids. That obedience to Christ is the catalyst for persecution. And so you don't wait to be persecuted to obey Christ. It's your your obedience to Christ that results in persecution. You see, some give the impression that if we were being persecuted, then only then would it be right for us to gather, which is a strange position, especially since all you need to do is, is, is obey the government, comply with government to avoid persecution. If you comply with the government, you may never be persecuted. And really, what that does to say that that only if we're being persecuted are we to gather as we currently are, you're basically saying that it's right to gather. Implicitly, you're saying it's right to gather. That, that according to the word of God, if, if persecution were on the church, then we would have an obligation to gather. So you're admitting that it's right to gather. I think that's amazing. Because now, if you say, well, we're not going to gather because we're not being persecuted, you're not doing that out of biblical conviction at this point in time. You're doing that out of some kind of pragmatism. To, to uphold your, your testimony in the world, which I hope isn't seeking the approval of men, or avoiding the disapproval of men. But let me just say this. Whether or not we're being persecuted makes absolutely no difference to me. I don't think that I could care any less about whether or not this meets the definition of persecution. That doesn't even factor into the equation for me. That's not the basis upon which I'm doing anything. I'm doing what I'm doing in obedience to Christ. I am quite content to let the Lord Jesus Christ himself decide whether or not this is persecution. He promises that those who are persecuted for his namesake will be blessed. He's the one that blesses, and I'm content to leave that in his court. My responsibility is to obey, is to obey Christ. Correct? Amen. Amen. doesn't matter whether this is persecution or not. That's irrelevant. Irrelevant. Doesn't even factor into the equation. 
And connected to this deficient theology of persecution, I believe is a deficient knowledge of history, both church and secular. We are awful historians, myself included. And that makes us incredibly susceptible to deception, both theological and political. Why do you think they want to rewrite history? Why do you think they want to change the curriculum in schools? To make us stupid. To make us more gullible. That we'll fail to see what's really happening. Fail to be able to see what's, what's really taking place in this day. And so we need to become better historians. You as a congregation need to get into history. You need to start reading history, one book at a time, exposing yourself to what has taken place centuries past, to equip yourself for the present. But the deficiency that I want to address today relates to the role of government. The historical time we're in has revealed both a deficient and inaccurate theology of government. And it's deficient for at least two reasons. One, we've simply had it so good for so long. We've simply had it so good for so long and therefore haven't had to think deeply about this aspect of theology. It's a muscle we just simply haven't worked. And two, as I've already said, we're ignorant of historical theology. Because theologians of the past thought deeply about these things and we haven't significantly enough and sufficiently enough exposed ourselves to their writings. And so to begin a conversation today that seeks to address this deficiency, I want to turn to Romans 13. Only I want to look at it from a different vantage point. You see, instead of focusing primarily on our response to government, I want to focus on the government's God-given duty. What is the God-ordained role of government? And can we even ask that question? And so there's a sense in which this sermon is addressed to the government. The government needs to be informed of its God-ordained purpose. And if we, the church, don't inform them, who will? We are the pillar and support of the truth. We are the, the priests of God to mediate his word to this earth, this world. And therefore, we have a responsibility of informing the government of their God-given duty. And so we'll certainly touch on aspects of our response to government. But the main goal is to highlight the God-ordained role of government. And so, if you would, open your Bible to Romans 13, if you haven't already. And let's go ahead and read verses 1 to 7. We're going to be only looking at verses 1 to 4. But let's read verses 1 to to seven. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by him. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. 
Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so the goal of our time is to further develop our theology of government to assist us in navigating our ever-changing world and, Lord willing, to even inform the government of its God-ordained role. And so if you're taking notes, jot down first the source of governmental authority. The source of governmental authority. This comes out in verse 1. Look at it. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, what does it mean to be in subjection? Just briefly, it means that we're to arrange ourselves under the governing authorities, to be submissive to them. Now, does submission demand obedience? Typically, yes. But it's important to know, Paul doesn't write, every person must be obedient to the governing authorities. There's certainly overlap between submissiveness and obedience, but obedience almost demands more. And obedience doesn't take into account that there are times when we simply cannot obey the government. And scripturally speaking, we know there are times when we can't obey the government. For example, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel 3, who refused to bow the knee to the golden image. And we have the examples of the apostles that we just read about this morning who declared we must obey God rather than men. And so then, is it possible to be submissively, or rather simultaneously, submissive and disobedient to the government at the same time? Can you be submissive to government while simultaneously practicing civil disobedience all at the same time? And the answer is yes, we absolutely can. We can practice civil disobedience while maintaining a submissive posture. You say how? By humbly subjecting ourselves to the consequences of our civil disobedience. Look, we recognize we're not the government, but we have a responsibility to Christ. And when that responsibility leads us into conflict with the government, we have to bear up under that conflict. Graciously, humbly, submissively, but nevertheless, we have to bear up under it. They have the right before God to do whatever they believe is right. They will be held accountable for that. And when they act unjustly, God will settle the score at the end of the day. But nevertheless, we can absolutely practice civil disobedience while maintaining a submissive posture. How do we do that? By entrusting ourselves to him who judges righteously, 1 Peter 2, 23. And it's important to note that practicing civil disobedience in one area doesn't mean practicing civil disobedience in every area. And so it's only at a particular point that civil disobedience would need to be practiced. And so how do we decide when civil disobedience is necessary? How do we decide when civil disobedience is necessary? Well, let me give you three categories. These are helpful. One, when the government forbids what God commands. When the government forbids what God commands. For example, forbidding the preaching of his word. Can't comply with that. Two, when the government commands what God forbids. When the government commands what God forbids. For example... Commanding worship of a golden image. 
can't comply with that. And three, when the government commands what isn't theirs to command, critical, when the government commands what isn't theirs to command, for example, the terms of worship for a local church, can't comply with that, not their jurisdiction. They have no, no jurisdiction at this juncture. And so we cannot comply with that. Three categories that call for civil disobedience. But all of that, of course, is geared toward our response to the government. And we want to home in on the God-ordained role of government. And so we're going to do that in the next part of verse 1, where the reason for being subject to the governing authorities is given. Look at it, next part of verse 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are, which exist are established by God. So the reason we're to be subject to the governing authorities is because all authority is from God. That means all authority originates with God, which means all authority is delegated authority. And that means the governing authorities are accountable to who? To God. In other words, the governing authorities have a stewardship from God for which they will be judged. They are not autonomous. They are not sovereign. They are servants of God, verse 5. Deacons of God. And servants are always accountable to their masters. And so what must they do to faithfully discharge their duty? They must govern by the standard by which they will be judged. They must govern by the standard by which they will be judged, which is what? The word of God. They're going to be judged by the word of God. They're accountable to God. And therefore, they must govern in accord with the word of God. Now, how many governments actually know they're accountable to God? Do you think our government knows it's accountable to God? Not likely. And if it does, it is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. And whose role is it to inform them? I've already said it. Whose role is it to inform the government of its God-given responsibility or to call them to repentance? It's the church. Why? Because we've been entrusted with the revelation that spells all this out. In fact, if the church refuses to fulfill this role and function, then it's walking in negligence. A negligence that's incredibly unloving. Why? Because those who are walking in governmental misconduct are actually storing up wrath for themselves for the day of judgment by not informing the government of its God-ordained role and not pointing out when the government is out of step with that role and by not pointing out that they are actually governing unjustly, we are not loving the government. These are individuals, human beings, who are accountable to God, who need to be confronted with their sin in order to realize they need to be reconciled to God through the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, complying with unbiblical and unjust government laws is neither faithful nor loving. Affirming the government has an authority it doesn't actually have is neither faithful nor loving. It doesn't 
demonstrate true love for those in authority. It doesn't demonstrate true love for our neighbor. It doesn't demonstrate true love for the church. It doesn't demonstrate true love primarily for the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of all institutions has this obligation to call the government to its God-ordained duty. Now, how do we do that? And this is where things get a little more difficult. Because there are many benign ways to call government to its duty. You can write your MLA. You can write your premier. Maybe a little less benign, you can do an open letter that gets some visibility. And there are more confrontational ways. For example, you can take them to court and enter into a legal dispute with them. But you can also do what we're doing. By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction here. Not with regard to our worship. And so by simply being open and by garnering the attention we have, which is not our choice, but it has come, we're showing the government they've overstepped their authority. Regardless of whether their excuse is a so-called pandemic or not. And so by obeying Christ in this way, the government is being forced to consider what their authority actually is. And it's facilitating opportunities like this to testify against it. Now it's important to understand that as we look at what we're doing as a local church, it's obedience to Christ that's driving this. It's theology that's driving this. It's ecclesiology that's driving this. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the supreme authority over the church. And he governs his church by his word. And our responsibility is to ensure that his word governs the church. But by doing what we're doing, we are also loving our neighbor. And that too obeys Christ. And in addition, we are loving our government because we are testifying that it's out of step with its God-given role. And that too is obedience to Christ. You see, what this season really does, and I think you'll see this as we keep going this morning, is it, it broadens the picture. You want to compartmentalize spiritual life and what it means to follow Christ and pull that back out of the public place, the public sphere, and live your personal walk with Jesus Christ all by yourself, you can't do that and be faithful. This is our Father's world. We're here as salt and light. We're his representatives on the earth. Just for the record, by the way, the media continues to talk about faith leaders. I haven't got the foggiest idea what a faith leader is. <laughs> Please, I am not a faith leader. I am an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a herald of the King of Kings. I am here with a message from heaven. I am not a faith leader, whatever that is. I didn't intend to say that, but nevertheless. So listen, it's theological in the context of ecclesiology. It's theological in the context of loving our neighbor. It's, it's theological in the context of holding government accountable. All of it is bound up in the word of God. The whole thing. Now I have to admit that historically I haven't been very politically involved. I've voted. 
I've certainly preached the word which has unavoidable political implications since the word addresses biblical morality. But that's about it. And so you might be going, well, James, what's changed? I mean, you seem to have changed your position on this whole matter of your involvement in quote-unquote politics. Well, for one, I've got to evaluate whether or not I've been negligent. It's possible that I've been negligent. That I have not been fulfilling my God-given responsibility. I've got to evaluate that. I've got to consider that. But here's the fundamental difference. For the first time in my ministry, the government is reaching into the life of the church. That's my domain. That's the domain of the elders here at Grace Life Church. That's the Lord Jesus Christ's domain. Attempting to dictate to us the terms of worship is not the government's jurisdiction, and I refuse to give the government what isn't theirs. Caesar has no jurisdiction here. So by recognizing that God is the source of governmental authority, things begin to open up a bit. Government is accountable to God and will be judged by him and will be judged in accordance with God's word. And since we've been entrusted with his word, we have a unique responsibility whereby we must call government to its God-ordained duty. And doing so can not only be done while maintaining a submissive posture, it's among the most loving things we can do. That's the source of governmental authority. Second, if you're taking notes, jot this down, the limits of governmental authority. The limits of governmental authority. Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So here's the logic. Verses 1 and 2. Everyone is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. This is due to the fact that government authority finds its source in God. And therefore, everyone who resists this authority opposes the ordinance of God and will receive earthly condemnation from the government. But there are some questions that need to be asked at this point. For example... Is all resistance to the governing authorities opposition to the ordinance of God? Is all resistance to the governing authorities opposition to the ordinance of God? We would have to say no. See the apostles. See Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We understand that. But how about this? Is every government law an ordinance of God? Is every government law an ordinance of God. We would have to say no. Otherwise, when government orders an evil, unjust law, God would be ordering evil. So no, when the government orders an unjust law, it is not an ordinance of God. God does not order unjust laws. Or in a similar way, this. Do all government laws come with the authority of God? Do all government laws come with the authority of God? Again, we would have to say what? No. 
Since their authority is delegated to them, their laws must be consistent with the law of God. Right? Or how about this? When the government says we can't meet as we always have, does it come with the authority of God? When the government says we can't meet as we always have, does it come with the authority of God? Are we opposing the ordinance of God? If you say we are, then you're essentially pitting God against God. That God is currently contradicting himself. And I realize at that point you might say, but this is a pandemic. So these are extenuating circumstances. And if you said that, you would be wrong on two fronts. One, it isn't a pandemic. And two, you have a deficient theology of government. You don't understand the role and function of government. And I want to see if I can address that. And this is going to dovetail with what we'll see next. And what we'll see next is the purpose of governmental authority. But the, the limits and purpose of government authority go hand in hand. The God-ordained purpose of something limits it. And therefore, we're going to see in a moment, the government has a particular lane. And to begin this discussion, I want you to turn to Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1. Verses 26 and following. This describes the overarching kingdom mandate given to mankind at creation. And this transcends every legal document that governs a land. So this, is, this, is, this transcends the charter. And in fact, I would say this, that the Constitution, I think according to its founders, sought to actually uphold what we're going to see right now. Genesis 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, familiar passage, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them, note this, rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God creates man to rule over the creation. Verse 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gives to man the unique responsibility to exercise dominion over the earth, to rule and subdue the earth. What this is, is an inalienable right given by God to man. It's an undeniable right, and by right I mean authority. God has given to man the authority to rule and subdue the earth. And that comes with certain freedoms, the right to life, that is the right to live the life that God has given to you up until he takes it away, the right to work. Yes, in giving to man the responsibility to rule over the earth, work is a fundamental inalienable right. Man, the Bible says you don't work, you don't eat. Work is a, a right given to man by God, the right to have a family, the right to be with your family, 
the right to be with your family when they're dying. That is a God-given right, an inalienable right, the right to acquire property, to possess property, to own that property. That's part of ruling and, 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 and subduing the earth. It's part of exercising dominion over the earth. Now to do that effectively, what is absolutely critical? If man is going to rule over the earth and exercise dominion and carry out his, his, uh, his inalienable God-given rights, what does he need? Especially in a fallen world. He needs government. Why? Government is in place to protect those inalienable rights. The purpose of government is to facilitate mankind exercising dominion over the earth. The government is fundamentally there to make sure that we can fulfill our mission to subdue the earth, to work, to worship, to, to be fruitful and multiply. The government is a God-ordained institution put in place to ensure law and order and to protect these God-given rights or this God-given authority. And so government is actually vital to man fulfilling this mission, especially in a fallen world. Now, one of the earliest times, if not the earliest time, that government is implied is in Genesis 9. So turn there. And it's implied in relationship to murder. Genesis 9, 6. The consequence for murder is put forth. And that implies government because someone would need to enforce the consequence for committing murder. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, and we could assume by way of implication, government... His blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So as clearly, or as early as, as, as Genesis 9, we have by way of implication a clear reference to government. The death penalty is set forth in Genesis 9. Now, fundamentally, what is that protecting? If government is to institute, exercise, implement the death penalty against someone who commits murder, what does that protect? See, you might be thinking, well, it protects life. Well, it does, but not the one who was murdered. The one who was murdered is already dead. So it's not protecting them. But it does it does provide a, a law that is to prevent and restrain murder from taking place. And so it's not primarily protecting life. What's it protecting? Rights. The right to live. Another human being does not have the right to take the rights of another individual through murder. See, this is really critical. If you believe government has the responsibility to protect life, then you are like buttoning up a shirt with the, the, you know, the wrong button and you're going to get the whole thing wrong. Government's responsibility is to protect rights of which life is only one. 
but it's a package deal. They have a responsibility of upholding all of the inalienable rights given to man by God. Again, the death penalty functions to prevent murder, which in turn protects a person's God-given right to life, at least until God takes it away. So again, this is critical to understanding the limits and purpose of government. Man is made in God's image. God has given to man the authority to exercise dominion over the earth, and this invests him with certain inalienable rights to accomplish that end. And to facilitate this, God puts in place government, and its responsibility is to protect these, these inalienable rights so that man can accomplish his mission. In order that, it would be a minister of God to you for your good, Romans 13. Right? If government does its job to ensure that your God-given rights are protected, are you not going to delight in government? If government facilitates you fulfilling your mission in life, in exercising dominion over the earth through, through employment and, and provision for your family and having a family and all the rest of it, are you not going to love and delight in government? Of course you are. Government doesn't grant these rights. Instead, government is obligated by God to recognize these rights. Government does not impart these things. They're already ours by God. Government must recognize them. Now that sets clear limits on government authority. Because when government begins to get in the way of man accomplishing his God-given mission, it is no longer functioning as God intended. Instead of that, it's facili- instead, of, instead, of, instead of functioning that way, it's failing to facilitate the kingdom mandate that we have and is oppressing it. And what that does is it sets the table for the purpose of government. And really to critique whether or not government lockdowns are consistent with the God-ordained role and function of government. So if you're taking notes, jot down third, the purpose of government. The purpose of government. Look at verse 3 of Romans 13, back in Romans 13 now. It says, therefore rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do, what, um, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it, is not, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So as we would expect, the purpose of government, based on what we just saw, is to praise good behavior and avenge evil. What's the obvious question? Who gets to determine what's good and what's evil? Whose prerogative is that? Who defines good and evil? And the answer should be obvious both from Romans 13.1 and what we just saw in Genesis, God does. God determines what is good and what is evil, and he does that by his word. You see, even if you take the Ten Commandments alone, the second half of the Ten Commandments, it's easy to see how they relate to the kingdom mandate. You shall not murder, which touches what? The right to life. You shall not commit adultery. Which touches what? The right to family. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Which can expose them to liabilities and even death. You shall not steal. Which protects a person's property and possessions. 
And that Paul has these things in mind is evident in verse 8 and following. Look at it. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As Paul is setting forth Romans 13 and the call to submit to government and even dealing with the issue of good and evil, he has the law of God in mind. And so good and evil aren't defined by the ever-evolving whims of culture. Good and evil are defined by God. And that reinforces the obligation of government to govern in accord with God's will. Again, an obligation for which they will be judged. And so the limits and purpose of government are clear and unmistakable. The role of government is to protect the undeniable rights given to man in the garden. And it fulfills this purpose by upholding law and order, punishing evil, and getting out of the way. Amen? Amen. So with that, let's place government lockdown measures under the microscope of God's word. question. Is it the government's responsibility to protect us from a virus? Is it the government's responsibility to protect us from a virus? Many want to say yes, believing it's their responsibility to protect life, but but that's not the government's responsibility. Especially given the fact that doing so actually infringes on undeniable God-given rights, like the right to work. The right to worship. Again, the right to be with your family when they're dying. In some cases, the right to life. I would love to be wrong on this, but with good, credible information, if an individual in the hospital right now undergoes a cardiac arrest, a nurse must put on full PPE prior to administering CPR. So someone is having a heart attack and they got to put on full PPE before they minister CPR to that person. In some cases, the right to life. And you might think, but, but what about war? I mean, isn't the government to protect life in the context of war? And, and if it is... Doesn't that make the protection of life fundamental to its responsibility? But even then, the government's responsibility in the context of war is to protect rights of which life is one. War ought to take place to protect inalienable rights. See World War II, for example. And so to this question, is the government's responsibility to protect us from a virus? No, we live in a fallen world. Viruses are inevitable in a fallen world. And it isn't the government's responsibility to protect us from a virus. What's their responsibility to protect our God-given rights? In fact, when you listen to our government as they talk about these lockdown measures, they talk about trying to balance the infringement on our civil liberties with the harms stemming from the lockdowns. 
That's pretty significant. Our government acknowledges publicly that there are harms that are a result of the lockdown measures. Just let that stick in for a little bit. Now, if they are trying to balance our civil liberties against the, the harms stemming from lockdown measures, they are out of their God-ordained lane. They are, they are stepping into a lane that is not theirs. In effect, they are seeking to play the role of God. Why? Because implicitly, they're deciding who gets to suffer. And what's its justification for doing so? That our health system could, could become stressed, might become overwhelmed. Can't say will because it hasn't happened yet. And there's no guarantee that it will. Could become overwhelmed, might become stressed. And again, what's amazing is that our government actually acknowledges the harms of lockdown measures. They recognize there are harms resulting from their actions. And I want you to feel the weight of this. Is the virus the government's fault? No, to our knowledge, our government has no responsibility, no culpability with regard to the presence of the virus. And so if someone should die from COVID-19, is the government culpable? No. We live in a fallen world. Viruses and death are inevitable. A virus is unleashed on the world. God is sovereign over that virus. The effects of that virus are not the government's responsibility. They do not have the responsibility to protect us from the virus. There's no culpability when someone dies from COVID-19. But what if someone dies as a result of government lockdown measures? Is there culpability then before God? I would say there is. Why? Because they're out of their God-ordained role. They're no longer functioning in accordance with their God-intended purpose. And therefore, the harms that result from their actions actually fall to them as their responsibility, where they're going to have to give an account for those harms to God. That's significant. We're just talking about Alberta right now. Broaden it to the whole world, where most of the governments of this world are in lockstep in the way they're handling this so-called pandemic. And so what should the government have done at the beginning? Should have equipped Albertans with the best information they have and protect their in alienable rights to work to worship to be with family to live the risk of the virus falls to who the individual the individual gets to assume their level of risk with regard to the virus not the government it's not their role it's not their function it's not why God put them there 
You say, well, what if the healthcare system ended up actually being overwhelmed? Well, look, that's incredibly difficult. That, that is no doubt a crisis. That, that is something surely to, to look at soberly and consider soberly. But God is sovereign. And government needs to stay in its God-ordained lane. And they're not going to like this answer. But you trust the Lord and you do everything you possibly can to meet the need when it arises. You take other steps to, to account for that possibility while still protecting the, the, the God-given rights of mankind. And, and that might even require leaning on the general public to get involved in the healthcare system, to serve their neighbors in the event that, that things got stressed. Look, I'm willing to get in there. If our hospitals are going to go and burst the seams, I'll get involved. I'll serve our neighbors. I'll put myself in the, in the line of fire on that. Wouldn't you? That is a much more humane, honorable, glorious solution for mankind to really come together should we get to that point. Instead of this false sentimentality where we're all in this together now. Now let's say you're the premier. And taking that approach is political suicide. What do you do? I mean, you survey it. If you are aware of your God-ordained role and function, and you go, if I do that, I'm going to commit political suicide. What do you do? You die a political death. You have a responsibility before God and to the people of Alberta who have elected you to put your foot down and stand and protect their God-given rights. That's what you need to do. Now, there are examples of this. This kind of governance. You ever heard of Governor... Christy Noem, South Dakota, she would be a breath of fresh air for you. I like to call her a rock star. I'm saying Christy Noem for presidency 2024. Hey, if you can't find a man who's courageous enough to, to take the helm appropriately and rightly, then I'll take a woman. Give me Christy Noem. I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Now, it's interesting, our, our premier just recently wanted to talk about the death rate and how the death rate is greater in South Dakota than it is in, in Alberta. Jason Kenney's responsibility isn't to govern the death rate. He's not responsible for the death rate. That's not his responsibility. God is responsible for the death rate. He's responsible to, to protect our God-given, God-ordained, inalienable rights. And so what does this mean for government? Our government needs to repent. Our government needs to repent. If there are believers in our government, they need to repent. And they need to begin to stand up for what's right. 
believers everywhere need to start standing for righteousness and, and calling the people above them to the right standard, even calling them to repentance. And those who don't know Christ in government, they need to turn from their sin and believe on him. They are storing up wrath for themselves for the day of judgment. There is a judgment coming and it will be unleashed with the full fury of God's wrath. And those who are in government right now have a responsibility, a a, a heightened accountability. They have a God-ordained function. They are a minister of God and they are going to be held accountable for the way they carry that out. And if they do not repent of the way that they are currently conducting themselves, it is not going to go well for them. And it's not too late. It's not too late. Put the politics aside. Forget about what's happened to this point in time. Deal honestly with the situation. I would just appeal to the government. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. If you would just confess your sin, acknowledge that you've come short of his glory, look to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and suffered under the wrath of God for all who would ever believe on his name. If they would just understand that God is merciful, that he says, come, let us reason together. That if they would understand that God is gracious and merciful, that they would come unto Christ and be forgiven and cleansed and washed. The whole record of any guilt against them totally taken out of the way. Then they're given a new heart, born from above. And they have everything they need to stand for righteousness and begin to appeal to those who are with them, above them, to do the right thing. What about law enforcement? Law enforcement needs to stand for righteousness. Law enforcement needs to say to their, that the people above them, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to write that ticket. No, I'm not going to arrest that pastor. No, I'm not going to put that person in jail. They have that responsibility. They need to do that. And by the way, they're out there. We've been reached out to by RCMP and other provinces already. There are men that are willing to stand. There are men that are in the RCMP that are trying to get their comrades to see things differently, to wake up and smell the roses. We've got an Edmonton police service officer in the building right now, in this congregation. Law enforcement needs to say no needs to do the right thing needs to take a stand well I appreciate you sharing that um, for those of you tuning in online we had a gentleman just stand and uh, just express that at this point in time though he was once a peace officer he no longer is and um, that um, that officers at present are currently violating the law by doing some of the things they're doing Thank you for that. I appreciate that. You know, one of the challenges here is um, many of our neighbors, I mean, we can see it online this past week, for example, many of our neighbors uh, hate us, you know, want us dead, um, want us locked up. And I would just say this, that I'm putting my life on the line 
And I'm doing that even for those who hate me. There are people in our precious province who can't stand me and want me dead. And I'm willing to put my neck on the line for them. And I would hope that God might use that in some way to reach them for Christ. Because what I'm doing here is, is a, a minuscule fraction of what Christ did for me. When he died for me while I yet hated him, while I was yet a sinner, while I was in hostility to him. And so I would just say this to the public of Alberta. If you hate me, that's okay. I'm going to put my neck on the line believing that I'm doing the best thing I possibly can for you, regardless of what you think about it. And that's loving my neighbor, which is exactly what the word of God commands me to do. Amen? Amen. let's try and bring this home. The source of government authority is from God. The governing authorities are accountable to God and God will hold them accountable in accordance with his word. There are limits on government authority. And that's because government authority has a particular purpose, a role and function that goes all the way back to the garden where government is in place to uphold and protect are inalienable rights given to us by God. And therefore, the government at present needs to cease with its attempt to mitigate the spread of the virus through lockdown measures and begin to protect the rights and freedoms of the people of this province. And more importantly than that, and what I would want even more than that, is that they would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're here today, I need to proclaim to you the good news. And the good news is only good news because there's bad news. The bad news is you were born in sin. You came into this world dead in trespasses and sins. Your heart came into this world hostile to God, hostile to his righteousness, hostile to his son. Truth be told, you hate God coming into this world. And if you are outside of Christ, then you hate God now. Your indifference, if that's where you're at, is hatred toward God. It's hostility toward God. You are being indifferent to your creator, the one who gives you right now life and breath. And so what God did, here's the good news, he sent his son to take upon himself human flesh, to live a life under the law of God, the, the law of his father. And he obeyed that law in every respect. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And in obedience to the Father, not only did he live a perfect life, he went to the cross to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. But you need to understand, it wasn't the crucifixion. It wasn't the, the physical suffering that made atonement for sin. That wasn't the issue. That was horrific enough. It was that the Father treated the Son on the cross as though the son had committed the sin of all who would ever believe in his name. The perfect, eternal, unblemished, obedient son was treated on that cross as though he were guilty of the sin of everyone for whom he died. After accomplishing that, he gave up his last breath 
on his own authority, went into the grave, and on his own authority rose from the grave, came to life, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And now, the proclamation, the message of Christ given to you this day by an ambassador of Christ is that if you would turn from your sin, if you would turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would come to Christ, if you would enter through the door that is Christ, if you would enter through the narrow gate, you will be saved. You will be imputed with the righteousness of Christ. That means you will be clothed with his righteousness, given a perfect record of righteousness to stand before God holy and blameless. You'll be given eternal life where you will begin even now to experience the life of God in your inner man as you're being transformed into the image of Christ. And that life will just carry you into eternity when you die in this, and leave this body and enter life to come. And you will have hope everlasting, joy everlasting. You will be in the presence and glory of the Savior for all of eternity, which, by the way, is not merely a, a spiritual existence. It is a physical reality, new heavens, new earth, new glorified bodies fit for eternity where you're going to get to work and, and, and have relationship and worship freely, exercising all of your God-given rights in honor and glory to him. And so if you don't know him, believe on him this day. Receive the Savior and be saved. Let's pray. Well, Father, we just commit this all into your hands. We thank you for the privilege that you've given to us to be here this day. Father, we thank you for what you have given us by way of responsibility. What you have given us by way of obligation, even in calling the world to repentance, our government to repentance. And Father, we pray that if it be pleasing in your sight, and if this proclamation be faithful to your word, that you would allow it to go forth and bear fruit and accomplish a great work both in this province and this nation. And so, Father, we give you the glory. We're here as willing servants. We trust you. And we entrust ourselves to you. For you are great. And there is none greater. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, music team, for leading us. Oh, great is thy faithfulness. Never has there been a day in history when God has not been faithful. And he continues. And he is faithful here, and he is faithful with our brothers and sisters all around the world. We can be so thankful. I, uh, I have to say that I, I'm very uncomfortable when people stand up and, and clap. And so 
I realized that that was an expression of your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, we can be so thankful that we can be here this morning. Tens of thousands of people have been praying for us. I have absolutely no doubt about that. We've heard from congregation after congregation across Canada, throughout this province. We know that many have decided that they're going to open their churches. And we pray that that would continue. We pray that, that the church would see its faithful response to open because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. I want to also welcome those on live stream. I realize that we probably have a number of, uh, of people tuning in, not only from, from Grace Life here, but also from across Canada, around Alberta, and, and certainly around the world. And you've tuned in to, again, support us, but you've also come to uh, come under the teaching of God's word this morning. And this morning we'll be in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and specifically the last four verses of Philippians chapter 1. Now I have to say that um, prior to attending seminary in Los Angeles, I had been watching the senior testimonials that the Master Seminary puts out. So these are men in their graduating year, and they testify to the faithfulness of God. God, how God brought them to the Master Seminary from all around the world, from virtually every nation around the world, how God then took them and delivered them through their time in seminary, and then even as they would anticipate what the Lord would have in store for them next, they would testify to the goodness and faithfulness of God. And it was in listening to these senior testimonies that there, there was one thing, and it, you, you may find this to be a, yeah, a little bit odd, but there was, there was one thing that really resonated with me. One, one, one thing that several men said that I, I really desired, specifically in when I was looking for a seminary, and many of the men said that the Lord had provided a brother in seminary to come to them and to rebuke them when they saw sin in their lives in seminary and I thought this is remarkable that, that they would be so thankful for that and I, I sought that certainly and that really appealed to me to, to know that I would be among brothers that would hold me accountable that would urge me to continue to live faithfully for Christ, who is worthy. And so I desperately wanted to attend TMS, and the Lord made that happen. Now, I say that because I know that in Scripture, the Lord has commanded that exact action, that we are to be teaching and admonishing one another, and we read about that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, where we see, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And this is the work of the church. This is a part of our fellowship. And it's a vital part of church life. It's, it's certainly not an easy task, but it is a necessary one. 
And the reason why I bring that up is because just as Pastor James addressed the government and laid out the duties of government last week, I want to shift the focus here a little bit because he, he, he pointed out several deficiencies in theology and he pointed out that he believed that there were churches that were missing implications that we find in the word of God. And as a result, it's taking them in a, in a different direction. And in a direction that we would say is, is not faithful. And so my purpose this morning is to shift the focus from government to the church, to the local churches, to the church that has been purchased by the blood of Christ, Acts 20, 28. And there's a truth that there are fundamental attitudes and behaviors characteristic to the Christian and certainly evident in the Christian church. Certainly these fundamental attitudes and behaviors must be present then among local churches. And I would say that if a church is not adorned with the gospel then she is an unfaithful church. And she is in need of repentance. And now, I I know it's certainly true in our generation. We've entered into a, a most difficult time. For those of us here, I don't think that we know of a time when the church has faced a greater or more divisive issue than the one that we've seen in her proper response, what her proper response should be to government encroachment. And our beloved pastor has clearly exegeted Romans 13 to help us understand this government overreach. And those sermons in our position are posted on our website and you can certainly feel free to visit there um, the word of God has been clearly explained. Our theological positions are, are clear. As, our, as is our desire to be citizens here in, in Alberta, certainly, and be responsible with that. And we feel a responsible response is to love our neighbors by making sure that the gospel goes forward, to make sure that those who are the ambassadors of Jesus Christ are constantly being fed so that they can go out continually week by week into the world and testify to Christ. So as we've journeyed through these 11 months, for me certainly, and I'm sure for, for you as well, God's word has consistently been bringing clarity to the stand that we've been taking. And affirmation after affirmation from God's word has come, certainly. It's not just one argument. It's not just based on the authority of Christ as head of his church, although that is our primary stand. But there are so many other details that that have been made clear. And it's also been interesting to see some of the parallels that we can draw from scripture. The church has seen many a pharaoh around the world reject God's messengers. 
and at the same time increase the burden on God's people to ensure that they would serve him and not God. And Pharaoh has certainly sent his taskmasters. We've had AHS and RCMP officers in our, in our building here virtually every Sunday. We've been videotaped, and shortly after each service, there's a, there's a report that is issued to us, but it's also to equip the courts with, a, with um, ammunition for an affidavit against us. And this has been in an effort to try to bring us into compliance with the burden that Pharaoh wants to place on us. I would say that the, the church has also seen Ahabs and Jezebels as, as, as God's men have cowered, right? Like Elijah did in, in Scripture when he was threatened by Jezebel. And yet, certainly this week, but... Long before this week, we also have been reminded that God has his 7,000, and they have remained faithful, and they have not bowed their knee to another. And we can be thankful for that. We are strengthened by that, certainly. I've been reminded of, of Jesus' trial, and even the trials of the apostles, as false charges were placed it, in, as evidence against them. And certainly we've seen that take place as well. Hearing that our pastor just simply doing what he has done for faithfully for the last decade of his ministry and now to be deemed as a danger to the public and to this province, to be seen as a threat for doing nothing different than he's done for 10 years plus. It, it, it baffles the mind We've seen our premier and a bureaucrat behave like Pilate and wash their hands of the injustice. But most troubling for me has been the response of professing Christians who have handed over the headship of the church to the province's premiers and unelected chief medical officers. I've heard church leaders ask, I've heard church leaders in this province ask our premier and the chief medical officer, will you allow us to sing? Would you be willing to give us 30%? Will you allow us to teach our children in Sunday school? It's shocking to hear church leaders first praise these people for what they're doing and then to ask allowances of them. And perhaps it's more shocking to see that they have the audacity to answer those questions. That they think that they can give those allowances. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 12 and Herod God wasn't so patient with Herod, was he? And disunity and division in the church continues. Many of us have experienced brother betray brother. Many of us have been chastised by other professing believers. 
I've heard many a professing Christian read this online as well, say that Pastor James is simply encountering some self-afflicted, self-inflicted suffering. And that this is certainly not persecution. And some of those same people, I'm certain that if it was another political party in office in this province, their tune would change. I'm here this morning to say, Christian, you need to check your allegiance. And Paul, writing from prison in Rome, provides believers, he provides the church with the litmus test. Now, one of Paul's reasons for writing the church in Philippi is to exhort the body of a joyful, to exhort the body to a joyful and unified life in Christ. And he does this, he encourages this pursuit despite the threats of persecution, as we see in the letter, despite pride and ambition, despite false teachers that are applying pressure against the church, and despite even their own material needs. And so our text this morning, in verses 27 through 30 of Philippians chapter 1, this, this appears as one long sentence. Really, it's one imperative in the Greek that Paul is giving to us. And it's an imperative that he places on believers while explaining exactly what fulfilling that obligation should look like. And so just to lead our way up to the text here, let me just give you just a, a simple and short outline of, of Paul's letter here. We see in the first 26 verses that Paul urges joy in persecution. And also he stresses that Christ is our life. Christ is our life. And then in the next section, he he commands unity. He commands unity in ministry. And he points to Christ as our example. And he does that from chapter 1 and verse 27 where we find ourselves all the way to chapter 2 and verse 30. And I would say at the same time that Paul's command in this paragraph results also in a sharp plea for unity among those who say they belong to Christ. And so let's read the text here. Please follow along in your Bible, starting with verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. And Paul writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. In our text here, Paul, using an imperative, 
instructs Christians to live in a certain way which will be clearly manifested in their attitudes and behaviors. And we shouldn't say in their individual attitudes and behaviors, but in their collective attitude and behavior. And I've titled this sermon, Are You Living in a Manner Worthy of the Gospel? So my outline will be simple, three parts. First, we'll see the demand of living in a manner worthy of the gospel. We'll see this in the first part of verse 27. There's one simple command there for us. And then secondly, we'll see the description of the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And there we'll see the life characterized by certain traits And we'll see that in the latter part of verse 27 all the way through to the end of verse 29. And then finally, we'll see the difficulty of gospel living. And we'll see that in verse 30, where we'll we'll see that this is, while it's a gifted life that we've been given, even to suffer, it's a life marked, not marked with ease. It's a a life marked with hardship. And so first, the demand of the living with, of gospel living. The demand of a gospel life. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. And so Paul is stressing something of singular importance here. Right? We see that in the word only. He really wants us to focus on one thing in this paragraph. How are you, as the one saved by the gospel of Christ, to conduct your life? How are you to lead the Christian life? Well, Paul uses a, the main verb here, which the NASB renders as conduct yourselves, right? This word is a derivative from the word polis, meaning city. It even can refer to one's citizenship within the polis, within the city. And so literally he's saying here, and the Philippians would understand this, he's saying, live as a citizen. Live as a citizen. Now Paul is is calling the church to practice responsible and loyal citizenship but there's more to to what he's implying here he understands that those in philippi are closely connected to rome and there's even a bit of a pride in them ingrained in them because they're roman citizens it's a privileged status that they enjoy and christians would be able to make this connection as they hear him say this but also understanding what he has already instructed them. And we, for our own sake, we gain clarity to this in chapter 3 and verse 20 of Philippians, where we read, for our citizenship is in heaven. So there's a connection that we need to make here. We need to understand that he's really telling them that they need to apply the values, the lifestyle, even as they were 
uh, proud of their Roman citizenship that they need to view themselves as a citizen of heaven. This is the imperative. So you live as a citizen of heaven. And not only that, but then live in a manner worthy, in a worthwhile manner of that citizenship. Paul uses the same term in in his letters to the churches in Colossae and also in Thessalonica. And he, he uses this term, right, in a manner worthy. He often is talking about the walk, right, the Christian walk. And so he uses it to describe the acceptable walk of the believer, and now we can we, we need to understand that we are being commanded to conduct ourselves in a certain way. And so there's an implication here that there's actually manners that would be unworthy of the gospel that we could walk in. And that's what he's warning about here. That's what he wants to bring to the surface. How how does this life, a life that is conducted in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does that look like? Well, Paul certainly has an objective standard in his mind. And this is, a, this is a standard that cannot be tampered with. We don't mess around with what Paul is saying here. We don't, we don't change anything here. We need to understand that although he has referenced, he has made reference of dogs and evildoers and those of the false circumcision, these are false teachers and pseudo-shepherds that he describes early in chapter 3. These are, these are those that are trying to encourage Philipp, those in Philippi to walk in that unworthy manner. But he's calling them to walk in the, the worthy manner. And so for us, it's critical to understand, to fully comprehend, what is this worthy manner that Paul is talking about? And it results from, this worthy manner results from and is fashioned after the gospel of Christ. He's telling us to live according to the good news found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only in the gospel. A manner worthy of the gospel. So we need to take a moment here and just understand what is this gospel that he's talking about. Right? It's this gospel that has brought us here this morning. It's this gospel that fuels our soul. It's God's good news to man. And we see this this gospel described even in Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. I invite you to turn there. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Now Jesus has entered into the synagogue. He's picked up a scroll and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah and he he reads these these words which are found in Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58 respectively. So starting in verse 17 we read and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What a glorious passage this is describing Jesus' ministry. This is the reason why he came. It's the fulfiller reading about what he is about to fulfill. It's about Christ's accomplished work. And it has everything to do with the Father's redemptive plan, which is the greatest news. You can go and click on any website that you want. You will not find greater news. You can open up any newspaper. You will not find greater news. You can turn to any media channel and listen to hours and hours. You will not hear greater news than the news that Jesus has just read from Isaiah. And immediately we're confronted with some realities here. Immediately we're confronted with a realization that man has a need. We see in these verses that there's poverty, there's captivity, there's blindness, and there's oppression. And at the same time, we see that the Spirit has anointed the work of our Lord Jesus Christ to address each of these needs. He is sent to preach, sent to proclaim release, to give recovery, and to set free. Friends, God sent his Son to save sinners. Plain and simple. Isn't it interesting that our pastor sits in captivity in a jail north of Edmonton. And yet, he's set free. And then those that are free, those that have placed restrictions on us, are in essence those who remain in captivity. This is a wonderful truth that God would send his son to set the captives free. And we pray for those who remain in that captivity. We desire that the Lord would give us an opportunity to present the gospel. Even as I saw some of the pictures yesterday from the rally and seeing some of the brothers proclaiming the truth. This is our desire that others would come to this realization. But they can only come to this realization if they hear the gospel proclaimed. They need to hear the gospel proclaimed. This is a gospel about the spotless Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice to take away the sin of the world, according to John 1.29. And yet we, we know that this same Lamb was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, according to Isaiah 53.3. And so we see that God sent a suffering servant And yet, he gave of himself. He was determined to give of himself. Determined to give us his affection. And he healed the sick. In fact, he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. And it's in our Lord Jesus Christ that God demonstrates his love. His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we see the needs of man being addressed in only one way, and that is 
through sending the Savior to pay the penalty for sin, a penalty that we could not pay. This is a gospel that's sourced in God. If we try and write it, we would write a different gospel. We would make it simpler. We would make it easier on us. We might even make it fun. (laughs) But God hasn't done that. This is his gospel. This is not our gospel. And it's a gospel of grace. It's a gospel of unmerited favor. There's nothing that you could do to earn your salvation. You could walk a hundred old ladies across the street and it would count for nothing, for nothing. It's by God's grace alone. And it's a gospel of power. This is a gospel capable of regenerating the dead heart of man. For in it, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. For in it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes is what Paul writes to the Romans in 1 and verse 16. It's an effectual gospel, right? It's powerful, it's effectual, and it results in man's regeneration. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is an effectual gospel. Ephesians 2 and verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That does not sound good. But take a look at verse 4. But God. You were dead, but God did something. Right? Back to verse 2 in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. But God, God did something, right? To take us out of that. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, but God saved us. But God made us alive together in, with, in Christ. We indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. But God, God effectually saved us. Ephesians 2 and verse 8 indicates that this is a gift. He's gifted us faith. And not only has he gifted us faith, but then 2 Timothy 2.25 says he's gifted us with repentance as well. Faith leading to repentance. So this is a gospel sourced in God. It's It's an effectual gospel. It's a gospel of grace, unmerited favor. It's a gospel of power. It's also an exclusive gospel. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. It's the biblical Jesus that saves, right? Let's not get confused with the historical Jesus. The historical Jesus has been manufactured to mean different things to different people. We believe in the biblical Jesus. And the biblical Jesus is the Jesus that saves. And he is the only one that saves. 
He is the only way to the Father. He is the only way to be reconciled to the Father. There's no other way. And all of this has been accomplished through his death and his resurrection. Galatians 2 and verse 20 reads, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now it baffles me, why would any church, why would any church depart from this gospel? Why would any church rather allow the government to dictate how you're going to conduct yourself? No, conduct yourself in a worthy manner of the gospel. Why would you allow the government to hinder the advancement of the gospel? We are obligated to proclaim this gospel. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we, we see that commission that's been given to us. It has to go out. It's the only way man is saved. Nothing should get in the way of that. Nothing should hinder that. Nothing should hinder this gospel of love. It's the grace of God. It's the mercy of God poured out on sinners. And we know and hear clearly. Those of you here, those of you on live stream, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's a promise. You will be saved. You will be saved. But that's the only way. And we need to understand that. It's this gospel that, that talks about the regeneration of heart, where we're bought, brought into union with Christ. We're justified. Our sin placed on him, and then there's an exchange that takes place. We, our sin is imputed on him, but his righteous life is imputed to our account. It's credited to us. Not only that, but we're adopted, and as we're adopted, we're given an eternal inheritance. And from that moment on, we are continually being sanctified. And at the same time, we're simultaneously being preserved, ultimately heading toward final glorification. Why would we not want to preach that? Why would we, why would we try to hinder that in any way? Why would we actually preach anything else? It's this gospel that saves. And it's no wonder then that Paul says in verse 27 of Philippians 1, he says, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And you can see where the church might lose some steam if they interpret it this way. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of current AHS health restrictions. That's going nowhere. That's not something that saves. So let's, let's not lose our focus here. Let's not be found dancing around a golden calf. Let's conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of this gospel and let's proclaim it every opportunity that the Lord presents to us. And Paul tells us to live this way. Whether he's with the Philippians or whether he's absent from them. He says, it doesn't matter. 
This is the way that you live as a citizen of heaven. You live according to conducting yourself in a manner worthy of this gospel. Now, I know Grace Life delights in this gospel. This is a gospel that's proclaimed here Sunday after Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. But not only that, it's a gospel that's proclaimed in our Bible studies. It's a gospel that's heard in the fellowship even after we depart from this worship service. We, we take such great delight in this gospel because we know what is done for us. And as we mature in our faith, we only take greater delight, we only receive greater satisfaction from sharing what the Lord has done in our lives. But we do know that other churches, there are churches that work towards other ends. There's the, the preaching of themselves. There's not preaching Christ and him crucified. To them, it's not a matter of first importance. But we need to understand how Paul viewed this. This was a matter of first importance to Paul. In fact, he says in, in, in Philippians 1, a little bit earlier, a little bit before our text, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. His life revolved around Christ, around nothing else. And so we should expect to see from someone living in a manner worthy of the gospel, we should expect to see certain things. And this brings us to our second point. So we've just seen the, the demand that's been placed on us, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now the second point is the description of living a manner worthy of the gospel. This is a life characterized by certain traits. But what are those traits? What are those characteristics? What are those qualities that we ought to be seeing? Now these are the, these are the traits that Paul was eagerly anticipating to hear from Timothy as he sent him out. He's waiting for his report back. He wants to hear, is this going on in, in, the, in the lives of the Philippians, in the collective life of the church? So follow with me in the middle of verse 27. Let's, let's take a look at the, this description. Remember, this is all one imperative, okay? Conduct yourself. Now he's going to describe what that looks like. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are one, standing firm in one spirit, that two, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and that three, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God, and then finally, fourth, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So we see four aspects of this life, of a life conducted according, in a manner according to the manner worthy of the gospel. So first, Paul describes this standing firm. And we need to understand that the, the term here that Paul is is using is a plural term, okay? It's plural. He's talking, he's not saying stand firm to one person. He's saying stand firm church. 
Stand firm, people. Okay? This is a position. This is remaining firmly committed to one's convictions. This is being unwavering. This is being very principled. This isn't open-mindedness. Rather, this is a, a tenacious steadfastness that he's describing here, and it's fueled by the gospel. Now, Paul's life most certainly exemplified exactly this manner of living, right? And he wasn't, he wasn't motivated by a pursuit of rights and freedoms. No, he wanted to proclaim the gospel. Certainly, certainly he appealed to his Roman citizenship, but that was only for the advancement of the gospel to give him another audience that he could proclaim it to, right? So we need to understand this, that this is... This is this is important, and this is the, the attitude that needs to be prevalent. And so it requires our conscious effort. We, and we see this in, in 1 Corinthians, actually, where Paul, after giving much correction to the Corinthian church, he exhorts them to, to exactly this. Listen to this in uh, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. That's a whole sermon unto itself right there. <laughs> Be strong, he finishes with, right? This is the conduct. This is what that conduct in a manner worthy of the gospel looks like. But let's not miss the modifier here either, right? He says stand firm, but there's more. Stand firm in one spirit. This is a collective attitude, as I've already said. And this is no doubt fostered by unity that's only made possible through the Holy Spirit. This is a gospel-driven church. It's unified in their stance because of Christ's saving work. And they stand firm. They're unanimous in their, in their view. Why? Why are they unanimous in their view? Why are they... Why would they conduct themselves in this way? Well, we already know. We've heard the gospel. It's because Christ is worthy. Because he's the, he's the object of our faith. And he is worthy of exactly this conduct. And isn't it true, Christian, that the fact that Christ is worthy, as I've already said, increases the delight that we take in him? the delight that we have in him as we mature. You know, Anjan and I made it, to, guess how many weeks it took us before we yearned fellowship so much back last March when, when we were, you know, essentially told, stay home, you can't come to church. So we went by first Sunday, second, third Sunday. It was excruciating. It was over, it was done. We, we couldn't bear it any longer. And so I don't, I don't have a clue why anyone who's been saved by this gospel would remain content and say, it's all right. We, we can wait until the church gathers again. We'll just continue on Zoom. We'll continue to meet virtually. I, I don't understand. I can't wrap my mind around that kind of thinking. I want to be with the people of God. I want to be in corporate worship. I want to be rubbing elbows together with the brothers and sisters. 
I want to be hearing the testimonies of the people. And I want to be proclaiming the good news, Lord. There is so many times that we encounter people, even on a day-to-day basis, if we're not practicing this gospel, then how are we proclaiming this gospel? And so we need to be unhindered in our corporate worship. No restrictions placed on that. God has never delegated the government to say, your church can only be this size. They have no business there. And also, there should be no restrictions placed in any way that would hinder the church from the Great Commission. Let's take a look back at the text here. Notice, notice without, I'd like you to notice this, right? So without standing firm in one spirit, we actually can't do the three that follow that. Okay, track with me here. How will you strive together? How will you strive together if you're not standing firm in one spirit? Or how will you face opposition if you're not standing firm in one spirit? Or how are you going to possibly endure the suffering if you're not standing firm in one spirit, if you're not taking this on together corporately? And so we see a second trait here that that Paul is describing. He says, with one mind, strive together for the faith of the gospel. And Paul uses a compound word here. It's pronounced soon athleto, And it literally translated means competing together. Okay, competing together. When we compete, we usually think we're competing against people. But here he's saying we're competing together. So there's a a teamwork here. And this again is a uh, a plural word. So he's talking about a group, obviously. This is teamwork. This is This is a unified struggle that the church finds itself participating in. And it's what the gospel requires. Now, apathy is not something that characterizes the believer. Some might say, you don't really need to be with others to worship, right? You don't need to be with them. I can worship God with my feet up on the coffee table. This is what people say. They're apathetic. But what does the writer of Hebrews say in the context of worship? Does he say, don't worry about forsaking your own assembling together? Is that what the writer of Hebrews says? Not at all. The Bible says, let us not forsake our own assembling together. So contending is necessary Stimulating one another to love and good deeds is necessary. There's no room for complacency. There's no room for lethargy. There's no room for slumbering. And certainly there's no room for any person that calls themselves a shepherd that would facilitate this. We need to think of Paul's ministry. We've been given so much of Paul's ministry in the New Testament. What did his ministry look like? Certainly it didn't look like anything that I've just described there. We need to be imitators of him. 
He struggled for the gospel. He contended earnestly for the gospel. He was constantly locked arms together with his brothers in ministry. This was the pattern. This is what he's describing exactly here. Now, given the implications placed on the local church globally, I'm not sure that there's a more critical time in church history for the church to be striving together for the sake of the gospel. I've heard it. I've heard that it's said that it's most difficult to evangelize somebody who professes to believe, right? They think they're already saved. And you see clearly there's no fruit being, being born in their life, right? There's, there's clear evidence that something is amiss and they're incredibly difficult to evangelize. Well, I think the same can be said for the church, for a church that's gone wayward, for a church that's no longer focused on the gospel. You know, we, we read about these churches in Revelation. What did Christ say regarding Laodicea? And it's lukewarmness. He said he'd spit them out. So we need to be heeding the words of Scripture. We need to not fall into just a complacency or even fall asleep and we need to urge our brothers and sisters and that's what we've already done this morning and continue to do we want those churches opened that's the only place where people are going to find salvation they need to hear the gospel proclaimed you need to be a gospel proclaiming church and so Paul really is stressing a unity here that revolves around that. There is one resolve. It's harmonious. There's no one out of tune in this. Okay, You don't have one church that's off key. Everybody together for the gospel. And, and Paul again to the Corinthians, he writes, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment, 1 Corinthians 1.10. Then in 2 Corinthians, when he's defending his ministry, he tells that same group, be like-minded. Why is Paul calling for harmony? Why is he so insistent on this? Well, we see in Ephesians 4, he, he He wants this in order that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And that we would be then diligent to preserve that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But, but Pastor Jake, but Pastor Jake, you're not being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You're you're just not. You're speaking against the church. You're speaking against local churches, I should say. We need to pay attention here to the participle that Paul is using. He's saying competing together. Competing together. What does that look like? Would the Holy Spirit lead the believer away from the practical aspects of fellowship for close to a year? Is that the work of the Holy Spirit? Would he urge you to stay away Physically, from your brothers and sisters in Christ. It makes no sense. And I could find no satisfaction in that as a believer. So, 
we need to pay close attention to what Paul is describing here. Let's take a look at the third trait here. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, this is where, he, where, this is where he's saying, let's just pick up the verse here again. Let's go back to um, verse 28. He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So the Christian's not alarmed. He's not alarmed by those who po- oppose him. Paul here is describing a fortitude that's found in the collective of the church. And they display courage amidst pain. They remain strong in the face of adversity. They're not intimidated by their opponents. I've sometimes thought, what would the apostles say? What would their response be? Or what would the martyrs in church history say if they saw the Western world and the Christians that make up the Western world, what would they say? You know, I, I think they might say something like this. So let me get this straight. You're not gathering because of a, peop- a piece of paper that's being threatened that you'll receive? You're going to receive a piece of paper? That's what's keeping you from... Really? That's what's causing you to stop meeting? The threat of government? But our church can't afford the fines. We'll have to close the doors. Well, there's house churches. There's, there's very various ways that you can still continue to meet as a church. The point here that Paul's making is that the believer's response is not controlled by fear, but rather by resolve. And we can, we can say here, open and honestly, we are not afraid. We are not alarmed by our opponents. There is no fear in us, not in the least. And if they take one, there will be another that will stand in his place. And when he's gone, another will stand in his place. And we'll continue again and again and again. Why? Because Christ is worthy. Because of this gospel. Has your life not been changed by this? Absolutely. So we don't don't suppress this in any way. But we have it go forward. Gospel proclamation continues as long as the church isn't intimidated. As soon as the church is intimidated, the gospel is hindered. Not with us. Not with Grace Life. And not with many other churches. And I'm thankful for all those words of encouragement that we've already received. Many churches are standing and they continue to proclaim the good news of Christ. And so this is a life that's aligned with gospel, and it actually serves as a sign twofold, right? It should cause a warning to the opponents. It should cause a warning that they are heading for destruction. They need to open their eyes. They need to understand that there's a danger here. There's a warning being given to them. And at the same time, that strengthens us 
is our assurance. It's an assurance of our salvation. It's a clear evidence that Christ is working powerfully in us and powerfully through us. And so, brothers and sisters, friends, churches, let us not forsake the diamond that is salvation in Christ. Let us not, let us not fear man, but rather let us proclaim this gospel. Now, it would seem that those Protestant churches that have acquiesced to government actually betray church history and misplace their fear. But Jesus is clear when he said in Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And so it's him that we fear. It's him that we fear. And as a result, we have no need to fear any other And then finally, there's this fourth trait that we see, and it's this belief that's gifted to us that's also then accompanied by suffering. And we read that in verse 29 where Paul writes, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul's explanation here reaches all the way back to the imperative. How how are we to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? How are we to live as citizens of the gospel of Christ? Well, we, we do so by receiving these gracious gifts. First, we, we're given belief. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it's, it, it's, it's almost like it's assumed, right? The way it's written, it's not only to believe in him, but then there's an emphasis placed, but also to suffer for his sake. And so we need to pay close attention here. It it allows the believer to identify here with the sufferings of Christ. And Peter writes exactly about this in 1 Peter 4 and verses 12 and onward where he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in his name. And so, just as the grace of God abounded in Christ's suffering, when believers suffer for his sake, when believers suffer for his sake, grace then abounds in them as well. And so, suffering endured successfully then makes faith abundantly, visibly obvious. And it affirms one's salvation. Now, the Western world doesn't know. As I've been reading commentaries this week out of Philippians, a number of commentaries say the Western world knows nothing of suffering and persecution. I think that they need to rewrite portions of 
of those commentaries now. I think the Western world now is starting to see suffering, starting to see the persecution. And so the Western world hasn't really been prepared for what lies ahead. It hasn't been prepared to stand firm in the spirit, to stand firm in one spirit collectively, because we're in a very much an individualistic society right now. And so we need to, um, we need to address the deficiencies that exist in us on how to take a unified stance. What does unity in the church really look like? Unity is not just getting along at all costs. That not, that's not unity. Unity is being like-minded as a result of Christ. And so I'm thankful for the unity that we've had as elders and the unity that has been found in grace life. We are standing firm in one spirit, I believe. But there's a, another, another exhortation that's poorly heeded, and that is to contend for the faith of the gospel as one person. Well, we, we find ourselves that in a, in a time where the gospel is being watered down. It's watered down by liberalism. It's watered down by materialism. And this is encroached into the church. And really when that happens, it makes it a gospel that's no longer worth contending for, right? It's been altered so much. It's not really a message that we any longer would want to then the church, would, the local church would want to contend for. Or, you know, sometimes there are churches that are so secluded, they're so uh, unto themselves that they, they really can't contend earnestly for the gospel. They have no one else to lock arms with to help in the face of the pagan opposition that surrounds even their local church environment. And so these are all things that we need to take uh, and pay close attention to. So we've seen um, the demand of the gospel. It demands us to conduct ourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ. We've seen the de- the, it defined or described by these four things. And finally, I'll just close here briefly. We also need to understand that there's a difficulty that comes along with living in a manner worthy of the gospel. That difficulty is shown vividly in the life of Paul. We see him write, as, even as he's describing how he endured hardships, but how those served as a powerful example for the authenticity of his ministry. He, he writes in 2 Corinthians this list of things that he endured through. He says, far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lasses. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. And I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false Brethren, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, 
There is the daily pressure on me of concern of all the churches. He even suffered out of a concern for the churches, caused them to suffer. It's an incredible list. How many of those can we say we've participated in? I think we're entering into a season where that's going to become, we may very well be checking off things on that list. But we can be satisfied in that as well, knowing that the Lord has brought that about for a purpose in our lives. In fact, the Lord uses our suffering to save other people. And we've seen that witnessed here again. Even as Grace Life has been caused to suffer, people are being saved as they're coming under the proclamation of the word. It's no different than the thief on the cross as he viewed Christ's suffering and came to saving faith. It's no different than the Philippian jailer who saw Paul and Silas suffering in jail. And as a result of the testimony that they they gave, he asked, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Well, it's this gospel, it's this gospel that has caused Paul, in, again in Philippians, to say that he counts all things as loss. Everything else is loss. And this last week, this last week for me, and I'm sure for many of us, has really been helpful in counting more things as lost than ever before. It doesn't matter anymore. It's rubbish as Paul describes. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Let us have that attitude. Let us have that exact attitude. Now I realize that there are people on live stream tuning in. Maybe they were hoping to see a disaster today. Maybe they're just curiosity uh, seekers. You know, they, they wanted to see something. Maybe they're curious. What's this uh, church doing in the news? Maybe there's some of you here that have come for that same reason. Maybe you want to pound on your rights and freedoms and make sure that you're expressing that. Maybe you've come here. You haven't heard this gospel before. I need to tell you, you've been conceived in sin. You have, right from the time you were born, you waited to a moment when you could first sin, when you could first commit that first sin. It was so ingrained in your, in your being already, your sin nature. And from that time on, you've been self-seeking, self-serving, and have continued in that way. And it's an offense to God to live that way because he has created you. And he should be the object of your affection, not yourself, right? But he should be. In fact, coming to Christ demands that we count the cost, right? There's a, there's a price to be paid. We need to count all things as lost, as Paul has said. And so currently you're sitting here, you're online, and you don't know this Jesus. You don't know the Savior that God sent into the world to, to go to the cross, to have the sin of man placed on him because God's 
God demanded a punishment for sin. He demanded death. And he's followed through on it. Death entered into the world. And many people, the majority of human history, has gone to their demise. And few are saved. But it's not too late for you. You can repent. You can turn from your wicked ways. You can turn from your selfish desires. You can rid yourself of the pride. But you need to come before the Lord Jesus Christ and say that he will be your Lord. You need to surrender everything to him your entire life. And then you have to believe in him. You have to believe in what he has accomplished on the cross. That it effectually dealt with your sin. That God then has removed that sin from you. Your, his righteous life has now been credited to your account. And it's the only way. If you don't surrender your life to Christ, you will die in your sin. You will be eternally punished in hell. And God is faithful. He's faithful to that plan too. Because he's faithful in everything. And so I would, I would entreat you Turn from your wicked ways. Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. You will be saved. And if that's you, I would love to talk to you. I would love for you to come and, and, and talk to me. I would love to counsel you. If, you. if you're burdened here this morning and you need someone to talk to, I would love to talk to you this morning. Don't leave here if, if, if this morning you've heard the gospel and you're going, my life is not right currently. Something is wrong. And I look around here and I see the joy of these people. And I see the strength of these people. There's something about them. I'd like to tell you about that. Don't leave. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the strength that you have given us. I thank you for the resolve that you have placed in us. And Lord, it's not of ourselves. It couldn't possibly be. But we do know that it's sourced in Christ, Lord. We are joyful. We are joyful that you have saved us. It has become our delight and it's become our desire to proclaim Christ crucified. To proclaim that to the world. And not only that, but that he was raised from the dead three days later to defeat sin and death. And we too know that when we die, we will enter into eternal life as a result of what Christ has done for us. And we praise you, God, for that. We exalt you for that redemptive plan. Father, thank you for Philippians 1. We pray for these churches that need to open. We pray for these churches that need to return to the gospel. I pray that they would. Father, I pray that you would place on the hearts of church leaders across this nation to realize that they need to return to what the Bible says. They need to stop preaching themselves and start preaching Christ. He is our only hope. And that they cannot have divided loyalties. Father, I pray that they would, that they would desire that today. 
and that we would stand together strong, standing firm in one spirit, that we would be striving together with one mind, that we would be um, able to not be frightened of whatever would come against us, and certainly that we would believe and be able to endure the suffering as a result of that gracious gift that you've given us. Father, thank you for these words. We pray that you would help us to, even this week, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of this great gospel, this gospel of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.